Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report. I'm Vago Maradian. A few weeks ago, we met with Chris Kubasic, Chairman, President, and CEO of L3 Technologies, to discuss his priorities for the company days after becoming chairman. Here is the podcasted version of our interview with Kubasic, sponsored by L3 Technologies. Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report. I'm Vagam Radian here in Northern Virginia at the Washington headquarters of L3 Technologies, one of our sponsors, to talk to Chris Kubasic, the new chairman, uh, president, and CEO of the company. Chris, congratulations. Well, thank you very much. Good to see you, Vago. Uh, great, great seeing you. Uh, you've uh, been with the company uh, since 2015. Uh, you were chief operating officer. Last year, you became CEO. Uh, just last week, uh, you became chairman, uh, succeeding Mike Strynes, who led the company for 12 years after the tragic passing of uh, one of the company's founders, Frank Lanza, in 2006. Uh, and uh, when uh, Lanza, uh, Lapenta, and Lehman uh, founded the company in 1997, the model was sort of the Sears catalog for, for defense and aerospace. Uh, and over the last 21 years, you guys have built a $10 billion company. Uh, and your goal now is to take this technology-packed company that people have had a little bit of difficulty understanding fully all of the things you do and to try to rationalize it and, and to re restructure it. One of the other things you've told investors is that you want the company to become the sixth prime contractor, especially when it comes to undersea systems, but you also want to prime in air systems and in other areas where you feel that you guys have the mass and the capability to, to try to do that. How are you going to transform L3 and what do you want this company to look like when you get done with this transformation? Okay, well, first of all, it's a, it's a great honor to be able to lead a company like this. Having uh, known Frank and known Mike Strynes for over 30 years, it's, uh, they, they both built a, a great corporation. And my job is to take it, as we call it, to L3 3.0, the, the next level. So we have a very engaged workforce. One thing I'm very proud of, we just conducted our first ever employee survey, 80% uh, response rate and uh, better than industry average relative to employee engagement. So the employees love their jobs, they want to work hard, and they get a sense of purpose, which gives me a great uh, feeling. They care about the country and they care about the company. So that makes my job a little easier, in, in uh, my opinion. So what we're trying to do at L3 is to take all these great capabilities and find a way to bundle them together to better serve our customer needs and also to move up the uh, food chain at the same time. And I've talked about being a non-traditional sixth prime the non-traditional piece is we're more agile, we're more affordable, and we're more innovative. And uh, I think we've backed that up with some of our actions over the past year or two. Uh, the second part is the sixth prime. We want to deal directly with our customers and end users. Uh, the UUV strategy was one we executed on where we're uh, going to be obviously in a position to sell our platforms to the U.S. Navy and other navies. Historically, our ISR work has been directly uh, with the end user, and we have other products like our uh, Westcam balls or night vision goggles. So we're trying to grow and move up the food chain and uh, give our customers alternatives to the traditional uh, contractors that are out there. Let me ask you before we go further for sort of a, a baseline understanding of what the budgetary environment looks like because that's shaping your not only your investment plan but your business plan. Um, there is a, you know, everybody wants more defense spending, but there is an expectation that after a strong 2018, uh, 2019 is going to be a peak and that 2020 is going to be flat, uh, if not declining. Uh, talk to us about what your expectations are for defense spending and how they're shaping how you're approaching the structure of your business. Yeah, I think we're a little unique in that uh, we not only focus on the investment accounts, uh, a fair amount of our contracts and revenues come from the uh, O&M accounts. So it's a little more diversified 
than a lot of companies that are focused primarily uh, on the procurement and investment accounts. So, um, you know, we anticipate uh, mid-single-digit growth for the foreseeable future. In my discussions in the Pentagon, even though the top line may be flat in the out years, what they're talking about is what we're doing and most companies are doing is looking for more internal efficiencies. So the savings that they get uh, within the Pentagon, uh, Secretary Shanahan working this first and foremost, take those savings and redeploy them to the investment or the addressable account. So I think within the total budget, the addressable accounts, mainly investment and O&M uh, could have growth as a result of these uh, internal uh, studies and uh, efficiencies that they're working on. Uh, I'm going to ask you a little bit about uh, business process change at the, at the Pentagon, but I want to stick a little bit to uh, stay on L3. Um, what do you think the company does well? What do you think it does less well? And how does that shape where you think you should be directing investment or directing less investment or divest? Yeah. Well, I think our heritage uh, and what we do well is focused on defense electronics, products, subsystems, and then ultimately systems, which is why we made the decision to uh, divest uh, Vertex. In 2016, uh, we thought there was a change in the landscape. Uh, Mike and myself decided we're going to give it a year. We're going to try to fix this business. We're going to win more business. And we were unsuccessful for a variety of reasons. Oh, oh for 3. Oh for 3. And uh, we therefore decided... And successfully and quickly, I might add, uh, divested, in fact, signed a contract just uh, last week, and it should close in the middle of the summer. So the services piece, when you go back over our history, whether it was the agility spin, the NSS sale, or the most recent Vertex sale, we're out of services. What we do well and what our core is are defense electronics and those types of systems. So that's uh, ultimately where we're focused. We changed our name to L3 Technologies to focus on the technologies and the breadth of our portfolio, and that's where we're focused for growth. Uh, you just mentioned L3 uh, 3.0, but you also have L365, which is another initiative in this sort of two-year process that you've set for yourself to refocus the company, restructure it, uh, you know, change its internal processes as well. L3, since its founding, has operated a bit like a mall with a whole bunch of boutiques that have been you know, in that uh, mall. Uh, talk to us a little bit about What's the right structure to have to, to, to have the company operate in a more integrated fashion? I know Mike worked on that a little bit to try to rationalize some of those uh, elements. And I know that internally in the company, the d debate was always, you know, well, these, these companies are really, really good at what they do and sort of let them flourish a little bit like an SAIC model almost. Right. Talk to us a little bit about how you think it's got to be reorganized, how it's restructured, what are the process changes, and how much savings can you reap in this process? Because nobody said headcount reduction without you know, wanting to significantly look at whether or not you've got, you know, the right kind of headcount? No, I think that's, that's a great question, and, and the culture at L3 is something special. And, and what I'm trying to do and work with my team on is how do we maintain that entrepreneurial spirit that we have in these various entities and take advantage of being a $10 billion corporation, as you said, with the scale and the uh, economies of scale. And that's the fine line we're working. So ultimately, I want the individual entities to innovate, sell, build, and deliver products, top quality, on time, on budget to our customers. But there's a lot of other aspects to a business, as you know, and I think those are the types of things we're looking at centralizing, the procurement, the IT systems, the email systems, um, and the financial transactions. So it's really that balance of having the entrepreneurial spirit out there to be innovative and creative and agile, 
and then reduce the cost of the overall enterprise by having more common systems. In fact, just in uh, this year alone, we've been very aggressive and uh, we're quite proud of two things I mentioned recently, uh, Microsoft uh, and, and we uh, signed a deal where we were the first contractor to be in the uh, Gov Cloud. The Azure, Azure Gov, Azure Gov Cloud, they have. exactly. So they came to us probably because of our reputation for being able to make quick decisions and uh, based on some prior relationships uh, I had with Microsoft and uh, we're pretty proud to be the first one in there. I would expect others to follow, but it's more secure, more affordable and is really a little bit of a game changer. We've been investing internally on a project uh, that we name uh, Project Sumo for wrestling with data and kind of have a little sense of humor. <laughs> and uh, SAP has recognized us as the 2018 uh, Innovation Award. So those are the types of things that we're investing in where we get more visibility to data, want to make uh, decisions based on timely, accurate data, and I think that's ultimately going to make us a better company. The L365 initiative is just a focus on continuous improvement, lean manufacturing, Kaizen, whatever terminology you want. It's our overall umbrella for every employee every day. That's where the 365 comes from to think how they can do their job better, how we can make this a great company. Do you, um, because the company has so many, so many folks are developing so much technology across the company, um, do you have as much visibility as you want about who's doing what and how you can apply that technology that's even within your own walls to solve problems that other divisions have? We're doing a much better job in that regard. I, I recently hired uh, Sean Stackley, and uh, Sean is our uh, vice president of uh, strategy and advanced programs. So he's been spending a lot of time on the road looking at our different capabilities. Of course, the uh, group presidents and I spend a lot of time together, and we're doing a much better job bundling these capabilities. I've talked publicly about what we're doing with the, Can the Canadian surface combatant, where we brought eight entities together for a single proposal to Lockheed Martin. We recently uh, won a program in Australia, the C-1180 program, where we again had multiple divisions. So people want to work together, and uh, we've incentivized them financially to do so, and uh, we're investing in the tools so that they know what the different capabilities are. We just put in our first uh, CRM system, customer relation management system, so we were able to track the different opportunities. People are able to see what's out there and uh, work in a collaborative manner. Um, uh, and I should say, Sean Stackley, the former um, uh, Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Research, uh, Development and Acquisition, uh, who held that job uh, for, for a very, very long time handling uh, some of the Navy's most important programs. Um, while you guys have had successes, you've also had a, a few uh, stinging uh, failures on, on some key contracts. To, you know, key competitions you guys wanted to win, uh, and, and uh, some of those were obviously from the Vertex side of things. But there was the C-12 award you know, on aircraft maintenance. There was the P-8, the Fort Rucker helicopter competition, and then the soft aviation one. And then there was the F-35 displays uh, contract. And I know you've told investors that you don't really see a common causal theme here. But at the same time, you've got to be as the, as the CEO sort of looking at this and saying, okay, look, what are the lessons here to be derived? And how do we do business differently in order to increase our probability of winning? What are some of the lessons you've learned? How, what are the things that you guys have to do differently to increase that win quotient at a time when all these contracts are a lot more competitive than they used to be? No, that's, a, that's a great question. And I think the overall lesson we've learned and what we're now doing differently is taking advantage of all the great capabilities and knowledge uh, and experiences 
that everybody has within the corporation. So in, in the old days, you know, a lot of these bids were done at the division or the entity level. Now we're having uh, strategic reviews. We have some uh, major recompetitions coming up for uh, F-16 training, as an example. And instead of reviewing it uh, the week before the proposal was done, we're having monthly meetings. We're uh, including people with uh, great experiences, both from the military, the government, and industry. And we're spending time together coming up with ideas and innovative, uh, innovative solutions. So I would expect uh, the win rate to increase. And uh, again, when you have 31,000 employees, you have great talent, great expertise, and you've got to be able to reach up and take advantage of that. And people are more than willing to help, and people are more than willing to raise their hand and ask for help. And I think that's the big difference. So it's transitioning probably more from a holding company to an operating company and trying to add value from a top-down perspective. And I'm looking for better uh, results. And uh, you're, you were always a good student at the University of Maryland, and you brought your, brought that to the company. Absolutely. Uh, it's a hot time. Merger and acquisition activity is on the rise, um, as every, you know, and so are valuations, uh, for that matter. Um, but you are looking to grow the company. You know, as we've discussed, it's a ten billion dollar company now, and you want to turn it into a prime, right? An, an innovative, a non traditional prime contractor. But some of the guys that you're competing with are twice your size. Uh, you know, on, on an effective basis, you've said you want to strike. Uh, deals three to five hundred million, but you're willing to consider things that are higher up on that food chain, perhaps a billion dollars, uh, if it if you really view it to be truly strategic. As you look at this competitive landscape and where you stand in it, do do you have the scale to be as competitive as you need to be against companies that are twice your size? Um, do you do you need to be bigger, and if so, how much bigger, and and where bigger to more effectively compete? Yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I try to balance uh, all of our stakeholders, spend a lot of time thinking about our customers, our employees, and our shareholders, and I believe that's my responsibility and try to balance those. Our shareholder base and what we've communicated is we're a growth company. So we're going to focus on organic growth, and we're going to focus on inorganic growth. So we have an alignment with what we're saying and what our shareholder base wants us to do. Um, I think absolutely we're going we're gonna to be acquisitive. We made eight acquisitions last year. We didn't make anything this year. Uh, relative to being uh, uh, able to compete with larger companies, I think our, our key is affordability and agility. And uh, we're moving quickly. We have, uh, I think, most times, uh, more affordable offerings and products. And I got to clarify, the, the top, I picked six prime because the first five are important clients and we have great relationships and teaming on a variety of important missions for the country. And while we probably will never build a bomber or a fighter jet or a destroyer or a major submarine, there are smaller systems and platforms that we think complement what those companies are doing and allow us to better uh, help our customers. And then ultimately, the key, and I think what's unique to us, is the communications. The low probability of intersect, low probability of detection is what's going to be critical to connect these systems, small, large, and cross services, and I think we have some unique capabilities there, and I think that's a vulnerability that needs to be uh, focused on, and uh, we have the capabilities to, to solve some of those challenges. And, and are those going to be the areas where you're going to do, you know, of your sectors? I mean, are, is, are those the market areas? What are the market areas where you're going to be putting your most, most of your investment at this well, point? I, I like to remind people that L3 is, is a diverse company. Only 70% of what we have is U.S. DOD. So, 
you know, we're in two other growth markets, the uh, airport security and detection. We've made a few acquisitions there. So as you go through uh, your travels, whether it's passenger screening or baggage screening, you normally see the L3 logo. I want right. you to think of me as uh, you're going through those. We have new but innovations. But in a good way. In, in a, a good very way. good way. In a very good way. Hopefully, uh, if you talk to your uh, congressman or woman, uh, you'll encourage them to buy our new machines that allow you to keep your laptop and your liquids on your check bag. So it is a serious uh, challenge for the airports and the airlines to get passengers through uh, the airport quickly and onto the planes. So I think uh, in our lifetime, security uh, at airports will continue. And uh, we've made some innovative uh, investments um, and acquisitions to grow. So I think that's an important part of our business. And in certain, certain parts of the world where I've been traveling a fair amount, those capabilities are also from a national security perspective, just beyond the uh, airport security. And commercial pilot training. We have a nice uh, military pilot training program, but we also have a commercial pilot. We think we're number two in the world when you look at that. And uh, when you look at the pilot shortages and the challenges, I think we're in a unique position. In the first quarter of this year, we were awarded more simulators than we did all of last year. We've made acquisitions, we're investing. So those two parts of the business are growing and I plan to continue to have a commercial aviation part of, of L3 and hopefully that grows over time. So, you know, we talk about getting bigger and larger. In this industry, you know, there is some benefit to scale relative to overhead and competitiveness. So we've uh, been able to maintain a relatively lean corporate headquarters throughout our 21 year history. And I think we can grow without adding people and make us even uh, more affordable. So I'm optimistic about the future. Uh, you, uh, you know, when you when you went off in the uh, commercial uh, aviation side of things, I was going to mention that in December you hired uh, uh, John Farron of Aviation uh, Capital Group to head uh, to become the vice president for uh, business development and marketing for your commercial uh, sec division. And pilot training has been going gangbusters. You know, a friend of mine said that if you know it's 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 a it's a business that's running on uh, it's an eight cylinder business running on all nine cylinders uh, at this point, uh, and avionics has also been something that's been a very strong area for, for, for you. Um, from a, an M&A investment standpoint, is, it's a two-part question. Does commercial um, get more attractive looking at some of the defense multiples from an, from an acquisition standpoint? I mean, is, is, is commercial acquisition actually start to become a little bit more attractive? Yeah, what, what we try to do and, um, from our process is think about everything first and foremost strategically. So every acquisition we've made, we look at it through a, a strategic lens, irregardless of the price. So does it make sense for us? Is it filling a gap? Is it giving us new capabilities for existing customers? Is it giving us access to new customers for existing products? There's a whole strategic filter, you know, aligning with the budget and, and macro trends. If it passes that, we go into an operational check. What are we going to do? Integrate it, keep it standalone, systems, culture, ethics, is there a fit? And then last uh, is the financial check. And uh, if you make it through the first two, then it's just a matter of what's the right price to uh, pay. And um, I think we've done a, a reasonably good job in that regard. I mean, we look at our own uh, valuation. We look, uh, generally, we like to pay less than, you know, what we're uh, trading at as a simple rule. And in this industry, sometimes rule. you trade at eight or nine times EBITDA, and sometimes you're at 15. And the market adjusts, you know, it's like when you buy a house and sell a house, you know, you're proud because you sold it high, but then you're taking the money and buying it higher, right? So it's uh, it's all relative. We don't look at it necessarily in that regard. Last uh, couple years, 
We've made acquisitions in security and detection, commercial pilot training, defense, Australia, Portugal, UK, US. So it's somewhat uh, opportunistic uh, based on what's available. And then, uh, you know, we've been pretty aggressive in, in making opportunities for us. I tell my team, if we're receiving a book from a banker, we're probably a little too late to the game. So we like to do exclusive deals. We like to build relationships over years. And when people are ready to sell, they like to come to L3 for the reasons I mentioned, because they can still maintain their company, their entrepreneurial spirit, and be part of a larger enterprise. And a lot of the men and women that we've acquired are still with the company, you know, which is uh, something we're quite proud of. Uh, do you feel that you need, do you need to expand into commercial aerospace uh, or aviation as, to give you some counter-cyclicality if the defense budget doesn't pan out and starts to trend downward? that you have a bigger anchor there to be a counter-cyclical counterweight? You know, I, I look at it more from a capabilities perspective. The capabilities are somewhat aligned. You know, when I joined, it was already there. We've been growing it. Um, you know, when I had a couple years uh, between my uh, Lockheed and L3 experiences, you know, I worked for a company that gave me great exposure to the commercial aviation and the airlines, so I was able to meet a lot of executives, which uh, actually, you know, was uh, fortuitous, and it now gives me a a broader uh, exposure to both markets. There is the benefit of diversity and countercyclical, so uh, you know I think it makes uh, it makes sense. And uh, there are very successful companies, as you know, that have a nice balance between commercial and defense. And I think that's one of the benefits and one of the things that differentiates us. And we talk a lot about how do we make this company great and how do we differentiate ourselves from everybody else. And that's where we go back to the agility, the innovation, the speed, and um, you know, even the portfolio and, and the mix of business. I was going to ask this question a little bit later, but I'll move it up. Sure. Because you, you mentioned, uh, you know, you started your career uh, at Ernst & Young, where you worked with Mike Strines uh, a, a, while, a while ago. So you said that it was a many decades relationship. 34 uh, years ago. 34 years <laughs> ago. Uh, and um, you were at Lockheed, where you were, became, we were chief operating officer. After you left, you went to Seabury. Uh, uh, capital, uh, well, Seabury Advisory Group, part of the Seabury Group, and Accenture bought the advisory part of it. What did those experiences all teach you, each one of them in a unique way? You mentioned Seabury to an extent, right, where that gave you a lot of like private equity experience as well. But how do all of these experiences come together to shape how you're going to be leading L3 now? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, as you go through life, you have lots of different experiences, and you try to learn from each and every one of them. I think a lot of the changes that I was instrumental in making at a company like Lockheed, I'm now making here at uh, L3. So if you've done it once, it's easier to do it the second time. It's all about speed. We're not getting any younger, right? So I, I think I tend to move pretty quick. I always have had this sense of urgency. I think it's kind of contagious. People are going at a fast pace at L3. We're making decisions. I'm a big believer in making decisions. The worst thing you can do is not make one. So we get the data. We put in the systems. We get the data may not be 100% accurate, but it's good enough, and then we move forward. Uh, I believe in uh, getting my team's input. We all sit around, we talk about things, we make a decision, we go off. No passive aggressive behavior, no meetings after the meetings, we're too busy, we move on to the next challenge. And the pace of change that we've uh, had is, uh, is, is pretty impressive. We just had uh, uh, our annual shareholder meeting, two of our board members elected uh, not to stand for reelection. And uh, just yesterday, we announced a new board member 
uh, Rita Lane. She's a graduate of the Air Force Academy. She worked at Motorola, IBM, and uh, retired recently from Apple, the VP of Operations. So we have a, an interesting uh, addition. Uh, everybody loves her. She's got great experiences and uh, brings some diverse thoughts and ideas and a little more technology and, and West Coast thinking to uh, L3, which I'm excited about. Um, when you were a COO at, at Lockheed, uh, there were those who looked at you as a little too sharp-elbowed, uh, maybe in, 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 that, in that job. Has there been a transition of mellowing from, from your standpoint in terms of the approach you're bringing People now? People thought I CEO? had sharp elbows? <laughs> wow, I didn't think of that. But uh, no, you know, it's, it's all about making change, and, and I've always had a sense of urgency. And depending on the size of the company and the structure, um, I guess I'd say I'm more mellow, but with this... Uh, relatively small headquarters and empowered team, we talk about things. We recently uh, froze our pension, and it was uh, three one-hour meetings over a three-week period, and uh, everybody got on board. We thought it was the best thing for all involved, and uh, we made the decision, and we're executing upon it. M&A, same thing. Every week, there are bankers in, bringing us ideas, outside advisors. We're meeting amongst ourselves whether it's our CFO, Ralph D'Ambrosio, myself, Heidi Wood, you know, it's a very collaborative uh, effort, the group president. So, you know, you'd have to ask the people I work with. Uh, I've always thought I've been mellow, but apparently not. I, you mentioned this um, a little higher up in the conversation about balancing all of the your investor needs, right, and the company's needs. Yeah, stakeholder and needs. All the stakeholder needs. And um, a couple of years ago, you were sort of a leading proponent of you know, dividends, buybacks in order to attract shareholders, and almost everybody in the business has done that on a fairly aggressive uh, way. Uh, now it seems like you're leaning toward more of an M&A uh, approach. You know, how, how, do you, how do you work that with investors who get used to almost uh, being bought by a company? You know, they're, they're looking forward to those buybacks, they're looking forward to those explosive share price increases, they're looking forward to those dividends, and then they have, and then they get very, very terrified sometimes when a company is investing money and look at it as a negative. How, 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 how are you doing this, and how are you doing that hand-holding and sales part of this with the investor community to, to sort of keep them aboard that, you know, hey, look, stick with us, man. They're, you know, we're spending money in order to make more money downstream. Right. Well, if you go back on, on the buybacks, the original uh purpose of those buybacks was ultimately to absorb share creep and you know the defense industry was in decline and everybody was historically compensated through stock options and if you look at any of the large companies there were literally tens of millions of options that were about to be exercised and ultimately significantly dilutive to the uh, to the uh, shareholders so if you go back into the 2000 time period and you look at the hundreds of millions or billions of dollars that were spent on share repurchases in the industry, you really didn't see any reduction in share count because as the options were being exercised, you were barely keeping up with them. Right. So that was the, the motive and the origin. And once that stopped and all the options had been exercised and people went to RSUs, uh, a lot of companies, in fact, just about all of them, kept doing the share repurchase. Um, what we've told our shareholders, and we've been very clear, is you know we generate 900 million of free cash hopefully in subsequent years more free cash uh, we will fulfill our dividend commitment which is about 250 million we've had 13 straight years of you know minor increases and uh, see no reason why we wouldn't continue to do that also taking that same philosophy of we don't want to have the share creep 
So we've talked about 300 million of repos to offset the share creep, 401k match, all the employees get stocked through the 401k, and then we have our usual um, equity for, for the leadership team. So we get that back to 80 million shares outstanding. And then the question is, what do you do with the rest? And what I've said is we wake up every morning trying to grow L3 organically and organically. And our preferred choice of cash usage is to make acquisitions. We've made over 120 in our 21-year history, and that's kind of in our DNA. We have expertise. We have a great team that knows how to execute upon these, and uh, that's how we would like to spend it. So I've been clear. People understand it. I think the shareholder base uh, is adjusted to that. They're generally growth-oriented. And, um, you know, here it is, early May, and we haven't made an acquisition this year. So... We'll do what makes sense. Uh, if at the end of the year we don't have an acquisition, you know, personally I'll be a little disappointed, but knowing we had a good process and there was nothing there yeah. that made sense, I'll feel good about it. Will I take some of the extra cash and maybe buy a few more shares? Sure. But first and foremost, first and foremost we try to grow. Uh, uh, I'd, I'd be disappointed if we didn't do a couple this year, but um, only if they make sense. Um, do, do I do I want to bet you a quarter on whether or not you're going to end the year with a with a deal or not? <laughs> I think I'll end the year with a deal. <laughs> okay, um, I won't take that bet. Um, do you um, um, uh, you you said that you spend you, you've been traveling the world, going and meeting with all your customers, meeting with all your suppliers, um, listening to them. You know wh what are your what are you hearing from them, and what are you telling them as you go around the world, whether it's through Asia, the Middle East, Europe, or elsewhere. Yeah, well, there's a couple things going on. I, I have, have uh, had relationships, so I'm, I'm leveraging those. I'm bringing my executive team with me, and I'm basically introducing myself and L3 uh, to these countries and laying out some of our capabilities. And what you find everywhere, not only here in the U.S., but everywhere, you know, the, the, the money is tight, right? So they're looking for creative, innovative, affordable uh, solutions. And a lot of what we do you know, are relatively inexpensive compared to some of these other systems that are hundreds of millions or, you know, even larger for a single platform. Billions of billions. Billions of dollars, right? So a, a lot of it's about situational awareness. We're, we're probably world-class in my mind in C4 ISR, which, you know, is really C6 ISR as we add in cyber and things there. And, and these countries want to have situational awareness as to what's going on. Um, in, in their various countries. So we're seeing a lot of interest in the ISR platforms. Secured comms, you know, we can have proprietary waveforms for certain countries. Uh, of course, with the unmanned undersea vehicles, which are still progressing, that gives you a lot of these countries I visit are around water or islands, uh, is, is quite appealing. So you're hearing you want uh, companies that can get your products on time, on budget, quickly and affordably, and it's playing quite well. Now, a lot of these we work with partners, uh, as I mentioned earlier, but a lot of things we have, whether it's night vision goggles, Westcam, EOIR balls, um, you know, are sold directly to the end user, either FMS or DCS. And, uh, you know, I think we're pretty, pretty good at doing that. So, you know, they like competition and they like um, more alternatives, and I think that's what we provide them. This team is also beginning to look and ask some very fundamental questions about what capability looks like in a great power competition. And so that can involve some very, very large trade-offs. As the CEO of a company 
that is a technology developer on a lot of very, very sensitive systems, you know, not just on the C, C6 ISI, ISR side of it, you know, but you've also talked about a whole bunch of technologies to secure networks and that being kind of a key part of it. At such a disruptive time, how, how do you map where you need to be in this changing ecosystem of changing threats, potentially changing needs, folks questioning even the need for certain very big systems in which we've invested billions as a nation. Do we need that? Is that relevant for the kind of conflict we're going into? How, how do you look at this dynamic space and make decisions, given that anything you're investing now is really not going to pay fruit until two, three, five years from now? Yeah, that's, this is something we spend a lot of time uh, talking about internally. We have some great uh, expertise that's on board. We um, meet with our customers. We look at the published documents. We have uh, access to the Defense Science Board. Uh, we have the appropriate clearances and access to know where we think we need to go as a nation. Um, you know, not being a uh, large platform provider, you know, we're on most every system to some degree. Um, you know, it's probably uh, an interesting aspect of L3. We don't have a single point of failure, but then equally we probably don't have a single contractor program that moves the needle. So it's that diverse portfolio from a business base that I think gives us the ability to sustain the ups and downs in, in the cycle. Uh, as far as three to five years, though, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I buy in on that because we've been uh, adopting these innovation sprints um, and these are one-week projects. We've done a couple. We started in January. Uh, some include uh, customers. And, you know, if you give people money and time, they're going to spend the money and time. If you give them a week, you'd be shocked with some of the things we've been able to do in a one-week period and it's either fail fast or succeed. So we're kind of changing the paradigm. I don't think we need three to five years on a lot of things. And we're doing things in weeks that move the needle that then give us confidence and opportunities to go forward. So the innovation sprints are, are something unique and again, different than what other people uh, do. But at the end of the day, uh, you're right, it's gonna be C6 ISR and it's gonna be about comms and those are our sweet spots. So I think we can be agile and uh, adjust. And um, you know, with all these investments, you gotta have the off ramp. So we take our best shot at the beginning of the year. Some of these programs, maybe they are three to five years, but after six months or 12 months, you got to have the discipline to say the customer doesn't want it, it's not working, and uh, I think we do that better than most. You make the decision, you give yourself the off-ramps, and you either get on or off. Well, I'll mention, you know, a lot of the acquisitions we've made are technology plays. Uh, this year, we've made two minority investments in a company called Peak Nano and Jariot. So again, it's a different model. A lot of people want to own 100% of everything. These companies have commercial and defense uh, capabilities. We make an investment, we get board representation, and we get the exclusive rights for the defense piece. They get the exclusive rights for the commercial market. We share in the uh, profit and their synergy. So we're trying to be as creative, innovative, and flexible on the business models and how we're investing our money. And uh, I think we can adapt quickly and change as the world changes. And that's what's unique about L3. You, you also have been working, as you said, acquisitions around the world. Talk to us about the international business space and how you're growing um, L3's international footprint, which has been something that was a focus that was set a couple of years ago, and you guys have been methodically sort of working to expand that each year. Yeah, it's a great question. We, we've really uh, tried not to boil the ocean here. We've picked about <laughs> 10 countries, 
that we're focused on based uh, on our capabilities, our relationships, their budgets, their needs, their relationship with the, uh, the U.S. And uh, we've invested by putting offices in those regions. They tend to align somewhat with the COCOMs. And uh, earlier this year, I set up uh, boards in uh, Australia, Canada, and the UK with both inside L3 executives and outside executives um, to give us a perspective to have countrywide uh, presence, strategies, and oversight. And ultimately, these boards are more focused on our strategy and growth. And again, a country uh, like the UK where we have over a thousand employees, various divisions and entities is a branding. One L3, go to universities, recruit, and uh, deal with our customers at that level. So, you know, we're excited about the upcoming air show in Farnborough. I'm sure you'll, you'll be there and we'll reconnect with the customers I've been meeting with and we're going to meet more customers. So, you know, the door's uh, been open just earlier today. I had a few hours in the Pentagon and, you know, things are going well. Um, let me ask you about your, uh, the Pentagon, but also um, how you guys are picking in internal investments on R&D and on innovation. Uh, you, you know, when, in the last administration when the, Pentagon, when, when the Pentagon asked contractors, hey, we want you guys to invest and bring technology to us, you were at Lockheed at the time and were one of the prominent voices who said, well, hang on a second. You know, we're not going to willy-nilly start investing money. First, we don't know whether or not you're actually going to buy what it is we invest to develop for you. Uh, and second, the budgetary outlook was very cloudy. So, you know, if, if you guys want to pay for it, we're willing to invest and develop the technology for you. you guys, you're now in a, in a, it's a different company. What are the metrics, the thinking you use to invest your own money to develop technology? How, how are you, especially in a company where almost every part of it is competitive in its own right, in its own little ways, with their own, again, entrepreneurial spirit, I would suspect that that makes this an even harder process when you're trying to sort of shoot multiple smaller arrows at each one of these areas. No, I think that's a, a great question. Historically, it's been uh, more bottoms up, as you suggested, over the last couple of years. We've started doing corporate-wide uh, R&D reviews and taken really a focus as to where we want to spend our money in uh, years past, we might have 200, 250 different uh, IRAD projects. We've cut that in half and doubled the money so we can get things to market uh, quicker, and we're starting to see that pay off. I mean, just last year, I mentioned how we were going to increase uh, our spending in sensor systems. We tell Wall Street, our shareholders, by $30 million because we see some opportunities, and uh, it's no coincidence that we grew 16% in the first quarter by spending that money. So I've said from day one, you know, we'll get smaller if it uh, makes us better, which is why we sold Vertex. And I will take a, a short-term charge, whether it's severance or closing a facility or additional R&D, if it's in the best long-term interest of the company. So we focus long-term. I know there's this desire for quarter to quarter, but I balance those two. Uh, we've increased uh, R&D over the last several years in actual dollars and as a percent of our revenue. And it was one of the discussions uh, I had today in, in the Pentagon. So we look, uh, you know, there is a national, uh, as you know, a, a national um, security uh, policy and that, that's been uh, published and briefed. The industry was called in with Secretary Mattis and others to get the classified version. So it's nice to actually know what the strategy is, what the concerns are. It's been well documented, at least the unclassified, and we can align our capabilities 
with what our customers need. And not only in defense, but I already talked about the commercial investments. And, um, you know, we're starting to see it pay off. So it's another element of growth. When you're a growth company, you're looking, how do you grow? Right? You're hiring great people. You're investing in R&D. You're spending capital. You're making acquisitions. Um, and while we've talked about reducing headcount and being more efficient, it's not in the strategy department. It's not in the business development department. It's possibly in the uh, support functions and the underlying systems like IT and finance. And uh, that's what we're doing, and we're starting to see results. Um, you mentioned being in the Pentagon. Uh, the Deputy Defense Secretary is uh, Pat Shanahan, who is from Boeing. Uh, the uh, acquisition uh, chief, uh, Alan Lord, is from Textron Systems. Uh, Richard Spencer uh, is the Navy Secretary, who's got a very deep Wall Street uh, and, and experience across the board, was Vice Chairman of the Defense Business Board, so, uh, you know, former Marine aviator, so somebody who knows the enterprise really well. Uh, Mark Esper, West Point graduate, lots of industry experience, uh, also as Army Secretary, and that's not even talking about Mike Griffin and some of the other folks who are, who are engaged in the process. Talk to us a little bit about how this administration is different, um, how the dialogue with industry and what are some of the things you know you like that you're seeing, and what's some of the advice you're, you're, you and your counterparts? You know, I know that that uh, the cohort and, and through AIA and NDIA, some of this is happening, that you're passing along to the department to sort of improve the relationship between industry and government. Well, from my perspective, well, first of all, you have to admire these men and women for uh, taking the time and 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 changing their careers and lives to give back to the nation. I think it's something that. That is pretty uh, admirable on their their part. You know, the outreach to the industry seems to be much more. I mentioned uh, Secretary Mattis and Shanahan had meetings with the uh, top execs from industry to review uh, the defense strategy and the national uh, strategies, you know, which I don't think had been done previously. And maybe we didn't have a national defense strategy for the last 20 years, to quote uh, Secretary Mattis. You know, uh, Secretary Lord has been uh, approachable through AIA and met with the industry. So I think the industry outreach is great. I mean, I think they're meeting with us as groups. They're meeting with us one-on-one -on -one and individuals. Um, you know, I think having uh, Secretary Mattis uh, having worked with uh, and having been in the military with so many of the leaders, there's probably an immediate uh, synergy and bonding and everybody understands the mission, the threat, and things seem to be going at a, at a relatively uh, quick pace. So, um, you know, the budget's increasing, that's good. I think the acquisition process is as efficient uh, as it can be, all things considered. Um, so generally, I think it's a, a positive environment. There have been changes to some of the uh, export um, and licensing process. Is it perfect? Probably not. Is it better? Absolutely. So it seems like everybody's aligned and things are moving uh, quickly. So I have, uh, I'm, I'm very happy with how things are moving. Do you, do, you see, do you see that speed? I mean, one of the things that uh, Secretary Mattis, Secretary Shanahan, everybody's been talking about is increase that agility, increase the speed, bring a more business-like focus in terms of, of the department and how it's run. Do you notice that extra speed? Do you notice yeah, the change? Yeah, again, it's, it's not a big part of our portfolio because we work so much through other companies and support them in a, in a variety of models, whether it's the merchant supplier model or the supplier model or the teammate. But in those cases, uh, we work directly with the end user. I would say absolutely. You know, a lot of our work historically has come through big Safari, SOCOM, right? Uh, Secretary Gertz was first with SOCOM and now with Navy. So, you know, all these things are, are headed the right direction. 
And that's one of the reasons uh, we're looking at becoming a sixth prime. I think we can get to these uh, men and women some interesting capabilities in a timely manner. We hope to have a couple uh, new orders announced in the uh, weeks or months ahead that I, I think we're quite proud of that will, in fact, uh, confirm that things are changing and moving at a fast pace. You're the chairman, CEO, president of a company. You were a CFO. Uh, so obviously, uh, taxes are very, very important uh, to you. Uh, big tax law change. Talk to us about how that tax law change has affected your guys' profits investment. And the follow-up question to that is, if you were going to tweak that tax law, would you change the R&D clause that some folks look at as punitive toward R&D investment? Yeah, well, the, uh, the tax law change has obviously lowered the tax rate for uh, corporations. In our case, it's about a $50 million uh, cash benefit each and every year based on our, our current size and profitability. And uh, we've opted to take that $50 million and treat it like every other uh, dollar we have. I know other companies have tried to carve it out and do something special, but we put it into our free cash flow. We have a strategy. We know how we're going to allocate capital. Um, it's beneficial, and it's going to go to dividends, repo, M&A, R&D, capital. Um, we are looking at some uh, enhancements to certain things for our, uh, our uh, employees. Um, I think I mentioned uh, we had a great employee survey and some great feedback and ideas that, that we'll, be, uh, we'll be implementing. I just hired a new uh, head of human resources, which I think is a critical position that's going to position us for the future, someone uh, who's pretty uh, innovative and creative. Uh, as far as the R&D tax credit, um, I got to be honest, I'm not overly familiar with the uh, aspect that makes it punitive. I think we've always uh, thought it was fair and had some benefit. If it was larger or more beneficial, we'd, we'd be fine with it. But again, in this industry, a lot of the uh, IR&D is, in fact, uh, reimbursed by the government. So while people like to call it an investment, we got to be honest, most of it goes through the overhead and is, in fact, uh, reimbursed by the customer, depending on the contract type. So. You know, we, we, we've benefited from the R&D tax credit. I think it works, and if it's going to be larger, we'd take it, but it's not high on our hit parade. Um, uh, as I was getting ready for this, there were a couple of folks that I talked to who said, well, you know, when's Chris going to sell, uh, and what would that look like? I mean, is that anything that you would be entertaining? Sell uh, what? At this? Well, sell the company, right? Of I mean, course not. That. Not not at all. In fact, we just had a board meeting this week, and, uh, you know, my desire is to keep the momentum that Frank Lanza and Mike Strinese had. We call it L3 3.0. We talk a lot about the next 20 years, how to position this company uh, for the long term. So absolutely, uh, we are not for sale, and uh, we're going to grow, and we're going to be uh, forced to be dealt with, and we're going to serve our customers, and we're going to get them products on time and uh, that are, are affordable and on budget, and we're going to be a, a, a great place to work. Again, the, the, the workforce is excited and you look at the caliber of, caliber of people that have come to L3 and they could go anywhere they want and they've chosen L3 because we're trying to build something special, a lot of energy, a lot of excitement and we're having a lot of fun. So uh, I don't think I'll be here running the company in 20 years but uh, I plan to uh, have a great run and hand it off to even a better leader. Uh, when I decide to retire. And in five years, where do you think you're going to be size-wise? Are we going to be looking at a $15 billion company, a $20 billion company? Well, hopefully larger, sure. I mean, I guess if we're at 10, 15 would be the next, uh, the next milestone. But again, it's not only just the top line, it's more cash, more EBIT, which converts to cash, 
and it fuels growth. So as they say on Wall Street, it's a compounding free cash flow story. We generate the cash, we reinvest, and we get more. So it's exciting times. Chris Kubasic, Chairman, President, CEO of L3 Technologies. Sir, thanks very much for the time and best of luck. Well, thank you. It's great to see you and I appreciate you uh, inviting me down today. Hope we can do it again.